Well, a patch job, a patch job is never meant to last, is it? It's always kind of meant to be temporary, although some of you may have tried to make patch jobs last longer than they should have. I remember being in in college and not having enough uh, to buy the engagement ring that I wanted to get for my wife, and so I ended up selling my car. Uh, But uh, my car had a, a problem, and that is that the dome light in my car was hanging by the wires. And while I was just driving my car around and it was just me, I didn't care that the dome light was hanging down. It, was, it gave the car character, if you ask me. But when I went to go sell it, I realized nobody was going to want to buy a car with this dome light hanging down. So I, I took all of my books and uh, I, I took my books and I, I went ahead and stacked them up on the center console. Guys, can we pull that back up? Um. And when I, I stacked them up on my center console, I, I took Gorilla Glue and I, I put it around the outside of the uh, dome light and I stuck it back up to the ceiling. Now, the ceiling's fabric, and if you guys know Gorilla Glue, it's, it's not meant to glue to fabric. But I didn't need it to last long. I just needed it to last long enough for the person that was coming to test drive my car the next day that wanted to buy it. And so that was a, a patch job. And uh, you know what? God was gracious and it stayed stuck up there. I don't know for how much longer after they bought the car, but they bought the car. I got an engagement ring and my wife said, yes, yeah, so it worked out. But here's some, uh, some other patch jobs. Uh, we're at the, the end of that slideshow up there. We're at slide number 11. So let me just run all the way back here. All right. Here's a, a patch job that's a, a little bit different. I don't know what happened to that clock. Somebody got mad. They, they were wanting quitting time to be sooner than it was, and they just went to town on that clock. And then they said, you know what? We don't need to buy a new clock. We'll just get a piece of printer paper and Fill in the missing numbers on that. I wouldn't calibrate your watch by that clock, but hey, maybe it worked for them. Here's another patch job. Somebody took uh, some wire cutters to that chain link fence, and they said, you know what? We don't need to spend money on getting a new chain link fence or replacing that section. Well, we've got bungee cords. So they patched it up with, with bungee cords. This one might be my favorite. You just wonder what was going through their mind. High beam, mid beam, low beam. They've got all three covered there. But you turn that on and then get in the car and then drive. I I don't know. But I'm guessing if he's pulled over, the the police officer's not going to buy that as a uh, sufficient patch job. Here's another one. This guy's thinking, you know what? I don't need a a front end. I don't need to go to a junkyard. I, I... We've got a Home Depot down the road, and they have plywood. And you can build anything out of plywood. So that's apparently what this guy did with some two-by-fours and plywood. And, but his headlights are better than, uh, than this guy's headlight. That guy gets, uh, gets credit at least for his headlights being better. But that's a, that's a creative patch job. Or there's this one. I don't need a, an airbag replacement. We'll just blow up the frog, and I'll slap that thing in the steering wheel. And if anything goes wrong, I've got that to, to save me. Yeah. Patch jobs aren't meant to last. And you know what? If, if we're smart, we're not going to put a whole lot of trust in a patch job. We know it's meant to be temporary. In fact, there's a lot of times when we start to put too much confidence in a patch job that we can get in trouble. And that's, that's what David has been doing. David, when it comes to his relationship with God, has been trusting in a patch job. He's been trusting in covering up his sin rather than actually dealing with his sin the way that the Lord wants us to deal with our sin. And in our text this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to get to the place where God's had enough of David's shenanigans, and he's going to 
intervene. And he's going to intervene in a, a major way in David's life. But as we get there to just bring us back up to speed, in chapter 11, David had gone through that progression of sin that we talked about. He had stayed home from battle. He had gone up and walked on the roof. He had seen Bathsheba. He had lingered over Bathsheba and lusted after her. He had taken her to come and lay with him and, and sleep with her in his palace. And then she had conceived and was going to have this child. And so there was this progression of sin. But then there was this spiral of, of cover-ups that we talked about as well, where David called Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Bathsheba, back from the front lines and said to him, you need to go down to your wife. And he says, no. And then David says, well, let me get you drunk and then go down to your wife. And Uriah says, no, I'm not going to do that. The ark of the Lord is out on the battlefield. My fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. I'm not going to go down and enjoy the, the pleasures of being at, at peace and at rest when they're out there. And he demonstrates, again, integrity there. And so David finally, in a last-ditch effort in this cover-up, sends him to the front lines with a death warrant that he hands over to Joab and it says, you know, put him on the front lines and then fall back so that Uriah will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And that's the, the, the greatest tragedy I think you see in chapter 11 is when David then looks at Joab and says, don't let this thing displease you. He doesn't have the view of his sin that God has of his sin because the chapter ends and it says, but this thing displeased the Lord. And so that's where we've been in chapter 11. Again, just patch job after patch job after patch job from King David. And the thing displeased the Lord. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, we open up and it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. David would have known Nathan well. Nathan was the Lord's prophet during this time. You remember back with the Davidic covenant. Nathan had been the one that David initially turned to and said, hey, I want to build a house for the Lord. I want to build a, a temple. And Nathan said, go for it. But then the Lord came to Nathan and said, you need to go back to David with a message from me. So David was aware of Nathan's identity and knew that Nathan spoke on behalf of the Lord when he spoke. And so the Lord sends Nathan to David. Anytime the Lord sends somebody to another person, it's worth us noting and paying attention to. All the way back, though, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, Samuel was talking to the Israelites, and he was rehearsing the history of Israel with them. And he's talking to them, and he says this in 1 Samuel 12, 8, When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, the descendants of Jacob, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and here's that same phrase, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So again, as Samuel is reminding the Israelites of the, the history of their own people, that they were in, uh, in Egypt and they were suffering under the oppression of Egyptian slavery, under the yoke of slavery from the Egyptians there, that the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. And he sent Moses and Aaron on a, a specific mission, and that was to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. Well, I don't think it's too much of a stretch here to see that as the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to deliver the Israelites, the Lord was sending Nathan in this passage in our chapter to deliver David. You say, well, David wasn't in slavery, except David was in slavery. David was enslaved to his own sin. David was enslaved to his own pride. David was, David was enslaved to his own self-sufficiency here. And he needed deliverance, whether he realized it or not. He wasn't crying out for deliverance, but he needed somebody to intervene. He needed somebody to, to call him out on his sin. He needed a more direct approach from the Lord than the Lord had provided back in chapter 11. 
Because in chapter 11, David had had the opportunity to confess and repent his, from his sins multiple times over. If you think of all the different failures of his cover-ups, those were all subtle opportunities that the Lord was providing for him to come clean, to confess his sin, to repent from his sin. And now needing a more direct approach, a direct confrontation, that's exactly what the Lord provided when it says in the text, the Lord sent Nathan to David. It's our first point this morning together. It's this, give thanks for God's faithful pursuit of you. Give thanks for God's faithful pursuit of you. All of us at one point in time have been where David is in our passage. Certainly, we can all look back to the fact that all of us were in a position, according to Romans chapter 5, where we needed God's faithful pursuit of us. Where we truly were enslaved to our sin, fully enslaved to our sin. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul said this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then later on, he'll say, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so our state, when we needed God to pursue us, was that we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. And that's the the indictment in Romans chapter 5. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We could not save ourselves. We could not deliver ourselves. We needed the Lord to come after us. And that's exactly what God did by sending his son for us. And so as men, we need to be thankful for that on a regular basis for God's pursuit of us. Not only do we understand that from the point of salvation, but I'm sure all of us have been there after we've been saved as well. We've been like David. We've been trusting in the patch jobs of covering up our sin, and we've needed God to be faithful to pursue us. God to be faithful not to turn us over to our sins, but to use others in our lives to confront us in our sins, to use the Holy Spirit that he's given to us to lay the weight of conviction on our hearts over our sin, to draw us into confession and repentance. And that's something that we need to be grateful for and thankful for. What does that look like? Well, first, we need to be thankful in our prayer lives for those things. Regularly thanking God that he came after us. Thanking God for the gospel, thanking God for the cross, thanking God that when we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies, he pursued us faithfully. We'd be thanking God in our prayer lives that he doesn't turn us over like he does to so many in Romans chapter 1. That by his grace, he draws us back into confession and repentance regularly. Another way that we can be thankful for God's faithful pursuit of us is to continually rehearse the the testimony. The testimony that that you and I have as believers in Christ. Hopefully we're rehearsing that because we have the opportunity to, to share that with people. But regularly, go back over the story of how God saved you. Be reminded of his pursuit of you and give him thanks for that. We can also be thankful when we have Nathans in our lives. Other men who will come into our lives and speak God's truth to us in love. Other men who will, Galatians 6, seek to restore us in a spirit of of gentleness. Who will seek to bear our burdens. These are things that we need to be thankful for. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
Well, this concept of God's faithful pursuit of us is a, a, a bedrock foundational uh, truth that we can always point to regardless of our circumstances to find reasons to be thankful to the Lord. So Nathan goes to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, Nathan comes to David with a parable. And what's a parable? A parable is a story with a point. It's a story with a point. It's not like an allegory. In other words, we're not going to break out every single little individual detail of a parable and try to assign meaning to everything. We're looking for one overarching theme, one overarching message and point. And that's what Nathan provides for David. We pick back up in the second half of verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and his drink, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and was unwilling to take his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so this story that we read here, it's, it's a story that if we're reading it and, and it, it causes the, the dander on the back of our neck to, to rise up a little bit. It causes us to feel disgusted at the rich man. It causes us to, to shake our heads in disbelief that anyone could be so thick-headed, anyone could be so ignorant, anyone could be so cruel. Then the, the story is accomplishing its, its end. This is a horrendous situation. This is an atrocious situation. The rich man who had flocks that were disposable to him could have taken a, a lamb that probably would have been far better than the lamb of this poor man to prepare for his traveler, and he wouldn't have missed it for a single day in his life, and yet goes to the poor man's house and takes the solitary lamb that, that the family had raised as a pet and rips it out of their arms and brings it, slaughters it, and prepares it for his guest. If your response is, man, that guy is a jerk, then you get the point of the parable. And David got the point of the parable as well. David, it says in verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Again, a parable is a story with a point. What's the point of this story? Well, the point of the story is we're about to find out as Nathan was communicating to David, David, you have committed a horrendous sin horrendous sin in this circumstance. David's anger is greatly kindled. And the thing about a parable is it doesn't start out once upon, once upon a time, right? I mean, think about the parables of, of Jesus. They're stories that could have actually happened. They're real life events. And so as David is listening to Nathan, David doesn't understand that this didn't actually take place. And that's why in chapter 12, verse five and verse six, David's ready to call Joab and the entire Israelite army back from the front to put this man to death. I mean, that's where David's at. His anger is at that level at this point in time. He understands the, the hook has been baited with this parable. The line has been cast and David bit hard. And we come to verse seven. Nathan said to David, what? You are the man. You are the man. We don't know the context of when and where this took place. We don't know if there was a hall full of servants. We don't know if... David was by himself with Nathan. We don't, 
We don't have any idea. But this moment of revealing, you are the man, says Nathan to David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. The ruse was over for David. There was no cover-up to turn to, nowhere left to, to hide. No more patch jobs for the king at this point in time. It's like if you watch detective or police dramas and they've got that interrogation room scene, right? And the the suspect is sitting across the table and when they first bring him in, the suspect is all smug and proud and arrogant, thinking there's no way that he's ever going to be found out and he's confident in his own arrogance. But then the detective lays on the table the damning piece of evidence and you see the man on the other side of the table absolutely wrecked and undone. That's David in this instance. There's nowhere to hide. The, the, uh, the indictment was clear. You had despised, David, the gifts that the Lord had provided for you. I mean, the Lord, through Nathan, rehearses all of the good he had done for David. He's reminding him, David, you had everything. You lacked nothing. If there was something you needed, God says to him through Nathan, I would have given that to you had you asked. But instead, you neglected the Lord's gracious goodness. You murdered Uriah at the hands of the Ammonites. And you stole Uriah's wife to be your own. The indictment is there, and now Nathan would turn to the consequences. Now, therefore, he says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Notice how many times in this passage, Bathsheba is not referenced by name. And I think that's very intentional by the Lord because he's continually reminding David, David, this is sin. And here's your sin. She's not your wife. Yes, you've taken her to be your wife now, but she was another man's wife. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So the consequences are rolled out for David. The first being that his dynasty would be marked by violence. That his dynasty would not be one of of peace. His sons would rule under a, a, a cloud of violence, a cloud of war. Second, his wives would be given to another man, to a neighbor, it says. And we'll see that that neighbor was a very close neighbor not too long in our study. Third, there was going to be discord within his own house. And then finally, this was all going to be done publicly. David, your sin was public, public, and your consequences, the punishment is going to be public. And so again, we think of David reeling at this point. So much for him to take in. Regret would have taken over. Shame would have washed over him. A fear 
of, of God, a fear of these consequences that would have been useful when he was up on the roof of his palace now would have been gripping his heart and gripping his mind. Man, we need to learn from David's example and we need to anticipate all of these things ahead of time. To look at the consequences of our sin ahead of time, and it's point number two for us this morning, it's this. We need to fear the consequences of rebellion. Fear the consequences of rebellion. As we're looking to be men who are godly and holy, it's important that we're able to push back from the table before we enter into sin and look at what the consequences for that act are going to be. What's this going to do to my relationship with the Lord, to my relationship with my spouse, to my relationship with my family, to my relationship with other brothers in Christ? We may not have a situation like David and Nathan, but it's important for us, again, to learn from this example to remember passages like these, 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a, a line written to believers, to Christians. That men, we will all one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we is due for what it, we have, have done, whether good or evil. That's something that we need to consider, that we need to dwell on before we enter into sin. I'm going to be brought to account, I'm going to be held accountable for this sin someday. Before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, eternally I am forgiven, I am clean, I am cleansed from all unrighteousness. But that doesn't change the fact that 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 judgment seat of Christ day is coming. And there's an opportunity for me to lose reward for my actions and for my behavior. Or Matthew 12, we just read this this morning in our DBR, verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So we need to fear the consequences of our sin. We need to be able to push pause and, and zoom out, so to speak, and get that, that eternal perspective on what we're about to do and realize, is it worth it in the end? Yesterday, I came across a, an article. There's a, a man in, in China who is now 25 years old who eight years ago sold a, a kidney on the Chinese black market for an iPhone. In fairness to him, he got an iPad out of it as well. So there's that. But he sold his kidney for $3,000 so that he could buy an iPhone 4 and an iPad 2. This was eight years ago. And his thought process eight years ago as a 17-year-old young man was, I have two kidneys and no iPhones. Maybe I can parlay one of these kidneys into solving my iPhone problem. And and that's what he did. He went to a military hospital in China. They did the surgery, and he sold his kidney for $3,000 on the black market. Now, little did he know at that point that eight years later, now what do you think he's facing? Kidney failure. Kidney failure. His only kidney now is shutting down on him. And they're pointing to that original surgery and the fact that it wasn't done in the, the cleanest of environments and that it wasn't done by the the best of physicians and the best of surgeons and and now because of all that it's now leading to complications that are causing his one kidney that he has left to shut down i wonder if he still has that iphone 4 or that ipad 2 laying around somewhere 
My guess is probably not. And I wonder now if you were to go and talk to this man eight years later and say to him, hey, if you could have seen eight years ago where you would be today, would you still make the same decision that you made eight years ago? I would hope he would have the wisdom at this point to say, there's no way I would do that. Well, man, that needs to be us with our sin. We need to be able to, to have the discipline to push back from the table, to, to zoom out to that 30,000 foot view of our lives and to see everything put all together and say, okay, what I'm about to give up for this fleeting pleasure of sin, when I consider what the consequences of the sin are going to be, is it worth it? I'm going to venture a, a guess to say that if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you're going to be able to push back and see that and say, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. But too often we don't do that. We don't take that time to, to zoom out, to look at the consequences for our rebellion and to ask ourselves, is this really worth it? We're so caught up in the pursuit of immediate gratification. I, I had a mentor in college who used to say that we sacrifice our future on the altar of the immediate. We want it and we have to have it now and we don't care about what the future is going to be and so we're willing to co compromise. We're willing to, to sacrifice our intimacy with the Lord, our relationship with other brothers in Christ, our relationship with our family in order to satisfy a fleshly impulse just like David did with Bathsheba. So we need to, to learn from that example and be willing to discipline ourselves. And it's hard work, but we need to do it to push back from the table when we feel that temptation and to, like we talked about last week, stop that progression of sin. And a great way to stop the progression of sin is to zoom out and look at what the consequences are. What are you going to give up? What are you going to sacrifice if you engage with this? Another way to do this is memorizing those passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Matthew 12.36 and 37. That there's going to come a day where you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be called to account for everything that you have done, whether good or evil. That you're going to be called to give an account for every careless word that you speak. These are good passages to, to have memorized, to keep in our arsenal, to go to battle against temptation and against sin. Another way to do this is to remind one another of the dangers of sin and compromise. Be, in other words, be Nathans in one another's lives. You see a brother teetering on the verge of sin, stop him. Grab him, pull him back from the edge. Do whatever you have to do to prevent him from doing something foolish. Another way to guard against this and to fear the consequences of rebellion is to think much on the eternal rewards that we have for obedience. Think about how the Lord lays out the, the rewards that we will have for remaining faithful to him. And if we dwell on those, then we're going to be mindful that, hey, if I sin, I'm going to be sacrificing that. I'm going to be giving up some of that. And then always be examining your life to see if there's any unconfessed pockets of sin that need to be brought into the light, that need to be brought to the cross, that need to be confessed of and repented from. Well, David now responds, verse 13. 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David gets it now. And you say, well, of course he does. He's been confronted. Everything's out in the open. Yes, but remember, David's the king of Israel. David could have looked at Nathan and said, Nathan, you're going to meet the same end that Uriah met. So this is, I think, genuine brokenness from David. I think this is genuine repentance. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. In the middle of this passage, where there's so much tragedy taking place, we get the good news of the gospel communicated to us right here. Confession, I have sinned. The gospel comes in. The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. No matter how far you are, because remember at this point in time, David is an unrepentant, murderous sinner. No matter how far you are from the Lord at this point, confession and repentance is available to you and you will hear in response from God, your sin is forgiven. You shall not die. So David is cleansed from all unrighteousness. He's forgiven of his sins and yet nevertheless, because of his sin, he was still going to face the consequences. And there was one more consequence that we didn't cover earlier that now we come to in verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So this isn't like a, hey David, you know what? God put away your sin. Stand up, put a goofy smile on your face and go out and don't worry about things. And that's important for us to remember that when we confess our sin, when we repent from our sin, yes, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And yet there should be a measure at which we still feel the, the, the sorrow over the, the gravity and the heinousness of our rebellion against God. And that's what Nathan is pointing to David. He's saying, because you have utterly scorned the Lord. Yes, you're forgiven, David. But because you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born out of this sinful union between you and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord, it says in verse 15, afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay on the, the ground all night. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Verse 15 is a sobering verse. The Lord afflicted the child. This isn't a a random event. This isn't coincidence that the child born out of the sinful union between David and Bathsheba is now sick to the point of death and, and actually dies. This is an extension of the judgment of God against David. And it's another element of the consequences of our rebellion that we need to bear in mind. And that, that is that the consequences of our sin can have tragic effects on those that we love. It's not just us. 
but God's judgment against us can, can filter over into the lives of those that we love and those that we care about. David's clearly distraught over what's going on here. He's praying. He's fasting. He's laying prostrate on the ground. He's refusing to be comforted. He's devastated at this point. But then something strange happens after the child dies. Pick up again in verse 19. But it says, when David saw his servants whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he, asked, when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. David gets up after the child dies and essentially washes himself off, puts on his clothes, goes to the, the temple and, or goes to the house of, of the Lord and, and worships and then goes back and, and eats food. And the servants are left scratching their heads because the, the king had been suicidal. They didn't want to tell him the child was dead because they were worried he was going to kill himself. And now that the child is dead, he rises up, he gets dressed, he goes about his kingly duties. And they're puzzled, and, and David notices that they're puzzled. And he says in verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. Verse 23, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Just as a sidebar, in a room like this with this many men, guys, I, I know there are some of you who have lost children, who have lost babies, who have lost young ones. I want you to, to take courage by a, a verse in a passage like this. Because what David is saying here is he's saying, look, the reason I'm not going to continue fasting, I can't bring him back from, from the grave. I can't resurrect this, this infant, this baby. But he says, but I'm going to be reunited with him. And there are some commentators that are saying, well, David's just arguing that he's going to go back to the grave on this. But why would there be any hope in David if all he's saying here is that he's going to die someday too? And so I think there's, there's solid footing here for us. If you've lost a, a, a child, you've lost an infant, you've lost a baby, to, to be confident that there will be a day if you are a believer in Christ where you will be reunited with that child. I think that's David's hope here that allows him to get up and to resume his duties as king. He had repented. God had forgiven the consequences that had befallen him. And now it was time for him to, to press on. You know, David doesn't throw himself a spiritual pity party here. He doesn't curl up in the fetal position saying, woe is me. I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did all this. I'm, you know, somebody come cheer me up because I'm such a, a wretch and he's not hanging his head. No, he's, he's ready to, to press on at this point. And there's a point in time in this process for all of us of confession and repentance where we need to get there as well. Where it's time for us to, for lack of a, a, a better term, for us to, to get up and, and clean ourselves off. To get up off the ground and, and to keep going, to keep pressing on. It's our final point this morning. It's this. We need to repent and obediently press on. Repent and obediently press on. David knew that there, there was still more for him to do. That this wasn't the end of things for him. That God still had a purpose for him. That God was still going to use him. 
that God still had a role for him as the king of Israel that he needed to fulfill. So he was ready to keep going. And this is going to look different for each and every one of us. It's going to involve different amounts of time and different circumstances. But there needs to be a point which we get up off the ground and we press on. I like to play golf and I'm not as good as I would like to be. But occasionally I'll go out and I'll be having a, a decent round. And then I'll come to a, a, a bad hole like the second one. I'll, no, maybe it's, it's the back nine, and I've got a great round of golf going to this point, and then the, this one hole pops up, and I lose two balls, and I three-putt the green, and, and I, I triple bogey, quadruple bogey, whatever it is, and it's, it's just a disaster. I've got a, a choice at that point in time. I can take my bag and my clubs and throw them in the pond and walk away, or I can say, okay, that hole's over. The next hole's in front of me. It's time to, to buckle down and... and Forget about that hole and, and try to do better now moving forward. There's more in front of me. This round's not totally devastated. That's the mentality that we need to have with our sin. We need to be able to repent from our sin, confess of our sin, and then press on. Pastor Mike preached not long ago of the difference between the reaction of Judas and Peter, if you remember that. And he held these two men up and he said they were both guilty of sinning. And they both reached a point where they felt bad about their sin against Christ. But what you saw in them was two totally different responses. With Judas, you saw him go in, in utter shame and humiliation and hang himself. He ends his life because of his sin against Christ. But in Peter, what you have is somebody who's brought to, to mind of his sin against Christ. And he confesses and repents and he's restored in that section of John 21 where he's walking along the, the beach with Jesus and then Peter presses on in faithful obedience and does great things for the Lord and great things for the church in the remaining time that he had there on earth. And so you see these two paths and men, we need to, to make a decision to be like Peter and not like Judas in this regard. If you sin, even if your sin has been monumental, like David's sin is monumental, you are forgiven in Christ and you have the opportunity now to press on in faithful obedience to him. Not with a scarlet letter on your shoulder, but as an adopted son of God who has been cleansed from all unrighteousness. You're not broken. You're not useless to the Lord. He can still use you for mighty things and in great ways. And it's time to, to stop throwing yourself a pity party about how you're a sinner. Yes, you're a sinner. But you're forgiven and now it's time to push on and be faithful. And to own what the Lord has for you now. That should be encouraging for us. We should be rejoicing at the cross and what that means for us. That when we confess and repent, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. That they're never going to be brought up again. That they've been atoned for. That the penalty has been paid. Yes, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we may have forfeited reward, but there is not going to be a single drop left for us in the cup of God's wrath when it comes to the point that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It has been satisfied. It has been paid for. And now you can walk in the freedom of that. And so as you confess, as you repent, make sure that part of your process involves this plan to resolve, to, to push on, to press on in faithful obedience to the Lord. 
Make sure it involves an examination of your life to see where you need to strengthen things spiritually in your life. Where are the weaknesses in your spiritual walls that you need to shore up, that you need to lean into? Maybe it's time in the word. Maybe it's time memorizing God's word. Maybe it's your prayer life. Maybe it's time fellowshipping with other believers. The other thing is, hopefully you have men like Joab in your life. I love what Joab does in this chapter. Because he looks at David and he says, David, you need a win. And so Joab says, I'm going to give you a a low-hanging fruit win. Verse 24, David comforts his wife Bathsheba. That's the first time her name is brought into this, by the way. Every other time, it's Uriah's wife. Verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Verse 26, now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites. Oh yeah, there's this whole war against the Ammonites going on at this point in time. And he takes the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, "Uh, I've fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I've taken the city of the waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David's needing a, a win needing something to begin to to gain traction and move forward spiritually. And so Joab does all the legwork, all the heavy lifting to sack this city. And then he says to David, hey, David, get the army, get your butt out here because you're going to take this city and call it by your name. And this is time for you to start getting your act together and pressing forward. Sometimes, men, we need to be that in another brother's life brother who's been wrecked by sin, devastated by sin, it's time for you to to grab him and pull him back in the game. If you see a brother moping, you see a brother living in that spiritual pity party over his sin, it's time to grab him and yank him out of that and get him back into the game. And so be Nathan in another brother's life, but also be Joab in another brother's life. And that's what David does. David gathers the people together, goes to Rabbah, fights against it, and takes it. He took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Guys, thankfully, as as Christians, sin doesn't wreck us and leave us useless. Thankfully, as Christians, we don't walk around with a scarlet letter for the rest of our lives. But we have that reality that Paul talks about in Colossians, that the, the record of debt consisting of decrees against us has been canceled, having been nailed to the cross. Praise God for that. So that we can still be used by God even though we sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then as Pastor Mike just preached on this past weekend, he wants us to get back in the game, living out and doing the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. David gets it right in chapter 12. The patch job is 
undone. And David begins to actually go about the hard work of repairing his relationship with the Lord, repairing his relationship with Bathsheba and with other people. Yes, it's still going to have tragic impacts on him. We're going to see that moving forward. These consequences are going to continue to unfold in David's life and in David's reign. But he had righted the ship when it came to his relationship with God. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. We talked about this part last week. My bones wasted away and threw my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then there's verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the promise that we have from the Lord. Godly grief, 2 Corinthians 7. Godly grief produces that sorrow that leads to salvation. And that godly grief is anything but a patch job because it looks to deal with sin at the only place that it can be permanently dealt with, and that's at the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for a text that we can read together like 2 Samuel chapter 12 and learn from an example of David that, again, is not a a positive example by and large, but there is some positive things that we can pull from here. And God, I I pray that we would be this type of of man, a a man who is giving thanks for your faithful pursuit of us, who is, uh, Lord, thankful for, for Nathans in our lives, who are fearful of the consequences of our sins so that we can get that zoomed out perspective and understand that what we're about to to give up for sin is just not worth it. I pray that we would have that discipline to be able to do that regularly. And God, I pray that when we do confess and repent of our sin, that we would get back in the game, that we would press on in faithful obedience to you, knowing that you have cleansed us of all unrighteousness. You've forgiven us. There's no condemnation for us anymore in Christ Jesus. And we can now walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us. God, I pray that you'd be pleased with this room, this group of men. May we be found faithful to you in Christ's name. Amen.